Hello everyone, it's Mark Goodacre here. Welcome to the NT Pod, a podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. It's episode 98, and today I'm in conversation with Robin Walsh. It's a huge pleasure to have on the podcast today Professor Robin Walsh, who is currently an associate professor, recently promoted at the University of Miami in the Religious Studies Department there. She earned her PhD at Brown University in Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean with a focus on early Christianity, ancient Judaism and Roman archaeology. And the reason that I invited her to join me on the NT pod is that she's recently published a really fascinating and compelling new book entitled The Origins of Early Christian Literature, Contextualizing the New Testament within Greco-Roman Literary Culture. And this conversation goes on for just under an hour and I could actually have carried on the conversation all day. In fact, we did carry on quite a bit beyond the recorded section of this podcast, but I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed it. Well, it's a warm welcome to the NT Pod to Professor Robin Walsh of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Miami. And the occasion for this conversation is that she's written a wonderful new book called The Origins of Early Christian Literature, Contextualizing the New Testament within Greco-Roman Literary Culture. It's just out, came just out in uh, January, and I think it's wonderful. And so when I read it, I asked Robin if she would come and join me on the NT pod and I'm delighted that she said yes so a very warm welcome to the podcast Robin. Thank you so much I'm, I'm really happy to be here and thank you for the wonderful endorsement of the book I really appreciate it. Oh it's the it was the the least I could do I was I was delighted uh, with this book it's, it's one of those books that just made me think all the time and I know it sounds ridiculous but you know because Really, any academic book should be making you think, but so many books in our discipline are a bit turgid, you know, and a bit kind of pro forma. But this, I just kept thinking new thoughts all the way through. So I really wanted to thank you for it before anything else and, and, and ask you, so, so the book is called The Origins of Early Christian Literature. What are the origins of this book? Where did it come from? How did it come into being? Well, the book is a version of my dissertation, uh, although it's not a lightly edited version of the dissertation. I really did rewrite big portions of it. Mm -hmm. And that's in part due to uh, the fact that I was hired ABD before it was done. And Mm -hmm. so as some people know, when that happens, you're in a very (laughs) under the gun to, to, to finish the dissertation somewhat quickly, maybe faster than you would like Mm -hmm. in terms of the research elements. So what I ended up doing was uh, taking each chapter and trying to submit some version of it somewhere for critique. Mm -hmm. And my approach in that case was I just wanted to hear what people outside of the ambit that I had come from at Brown University. I worked under Stan Stowers and Ross Mm -hmm. Kramer and David Constan in classics. And they were wonderfully supportive, uh, especially Stan and and David uh, and their influences all over this book, I think Mm -hmm. you can can Mm -hmm. see that. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so I wanted to see what people outside the field would make of some of my theses because they were pushing the envelope a little bit. So that is the origin of the book insofar as the the genesis of it was my Mm -hmm. my dissertation work. Although things like my comparison between the Gospels and the Satyricon 
I did send to a classics journal just to see what mm -hmm. classicists would think. And that tends to be my approach to things. Mm -hmm. I, I will come up with some theory that I think is a little bit out there or, or wild. Mm -hmm. And I always want to test it in the marketplace to right. some extent before right. I commit right. it to something like the book. So then when I was, the book was accepted by Cambridge, I, I then did a, a rewrite once again. Mm -hmm. both in terms of the content, of course, to sharpen my thoughts, but also I tried to execute this in a style that was a little more accessible mm -hmm. than the traditional academic book, just because I felt that I had to repeat myself a few times mm -hmm. to make sure that the thesis stuck. And to some extent, that's my own neuroses <laughs> in the sense mm -hmm. that I even at times faked myself out. With, mm -hmm. with what I was putting forward, because I would think, no, no, that's impossible. You know, I, <laughs> I, the scholarship has been right on this point. How could I possibly think this? And then I would have to remind myself, I would actually mm -hmm. keep notes that this is why my thesis works. And it helped me come up with the kind of new new frame that you're, you're talking right. about. I mean, the thing that I, I suppose that touches on is that this feels like a radical book, but it shouldn't really be that radical a thesis that we should be reading the Gospels alongside other bits of Greco-Roman literary culture from the time. I mean, that shouldn't be that radical. And yet we're in this field that has all of these constructs that we buy into when we're in graduate school. I mean, could you just flesh out a little bit for us what you're challenging in this book? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the basic premise of the book, where it started, so another, a different origin mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is I couldn't figure out why the gospels were always spoken of in terms of community. Mm -hmm. So why we had this approach where you could mirror read these texts to reconstruct this social situation for which we, A, didn't really have any evidence except our determination that this was the case, our assumption that this was the case. And also nobody else in, in any other department that studies ancient literature makes this move really, with the exception mm -hmm. possibly of Homer. I understand that, you know, in mm -hmm. classics, but that's a, an ongoing debate. But, uh, and maybe Aesop, those are the two cases that I could see and I talk about them both in the book. But other than that, uh, I'm borrowing a, a phrase from, from Stowers here where he says, you know, there's no, I think he says Virgil, you know, we don't speak mm -hmm. of the Virgilian community when we talk about <laughs> Virgil. Yeah. And so that seemed like uh, something very odd to me. The the first paper that I wrote that actually helped me come to that thesis, in addition to reading uh, Stowers article on, on Christian community was, I, I had toyed with the idea of a dissertation that asserted that the gospels were inspired almost purely by Paul and that Paul himself is actually the model for how Jesus is presented in the gospels. Mm -hmm. So I was working on that and trying to show how Numa and Mark is inspired by the same kind of middle platonic mm -hmm. understanding of substances as you see in, in Paul's letters. And that's what made me start to realize these are just normal Greco-Roman authors mm -hmm. who are fashioning their presentation of Jesus in a way that really corresponds quite securely with what we're seeing elsewhere in that Greco-Roman literary environment and that's not a radical thesis other people mm -hmm. have surely noted this but the the piece that I felt was a little bit different was this idea well what happens if it's not a Christian community and an oral tradition that is informing 
the mm-hmm. content in the gospels? What if it's just the topic and mm-hmm. you have a, an author, a, a normal Greco-Roman author, as we would expect or analyze uh, anywhere else in literature, uh, that is making some choices that help frame how Jesus mm-hmm. is actually presented. And we have taken that as evidence of some kind of historical data on Mm-hmm. or on the historical Jesus or some kind of data on this community and what they found important. And so that is an entirely new network, social network to my mind. If, mm-hmm. if we understand the gospels as representing early Christianity, but an early Christianity that is comprised of what I call, I borrow language from Bourdieu, elite cultural producers. Mm-hmm. So if this is an elite stratum of society that's producing these things and interacting with one another mm-hmm. and having these conversations that are based on literary execution more so than something like oral tradition, what does that do to our understanding of that, mm-hmm. of those early stages of Christianity? So that was the thesis and that led me down all kinds of rabbit holes in the book, including Mm -hmm. trying to understand, well, where did this come from? Why do we assume community behind these texts? And that brought me back to the origins of the field. Mm -hmm. So I looked at 17th, not so much, but 18th and 19th century scholarship, particularly in Germany, just because I have to narrow the field somewhat. But I looked at this period called romanticism and for anyone who's not familiar with romanticism as a a discrete classification of a particular movement, intellectual movement, think of the Grimm brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's actually a really good analogy. There's another story about why I picked the Grimm brothers in the book as a model of this, but the Grimm brothers are supposed to have collected these oral stories of the German people to try to talk about the folk. And Mm -hmm. you know, that these stories that were important to them that were recorded down by these two individuals And I realized that at the same time, people like the Grimm brothers, and they're not the only ones, but that people like the Grimm brothers were employing this folk literature model of looking Mm -hmm. for community. It's at the same time as the field of religious studies is rising up in the academy, Mm -hmm. also at a time when the disciplines we have now were not, did not obtain or, you know, pertain to the, to the situation. So you would have somebody working on a translation of the gospels in one moment and then going to some kind of German folktale on the other mm-hmm. and then talking about, you know, Ossian or you, mm-hmm. know, you just had this, this wide variety. So the methodologies from that period were very similar to a wide variety of texts. But once the disciplines and the trajectories of those disciplines divided, everyone else went in a different direction influenced mm-hmm. by literary theory or critical theory or you know, other, other kinds of uh, intellectual movements, but religious studies stayed sort of curiously static mm-hmm. in the sense that they continued to approach these texts from the perspective of looking for this, this community that was presumed to be there. So that led me to critiques of, of Derrida and, and things like that, um, which I won't get into too much now, but that is, is basically how, how the book formed. Sure. No, that's absolutely fascinating. And and the thing was, so so why did this weird field that we're in? Why did it? Why did it kind of stall in that kind of romantic view of of history? I mean, is it you? You hint in that that there's something about the theological slash confessional mode within which lots of people in our field work that has actually caused us to get kind of entrenched in a paradigm that's actually quite useful, especially if you want to sort of see these texts as somehow kind of normative and somehow 
defining of of the way that we all ought to be living our lives. I mean, does does that explain something of why we've got stuck in this and haven't actually sort of moved forward in the way that some other fields have? I think so. I think there were really three ideas or tracks that emerged in my mind working on this. The first is what you just identified, this theological approach that it doesn't surprise anyone. And this is not an indictment per se on the field, but it's only, I would say in the last one or two generations of the field that non-clergy are really pursuing this as a course Mm -hmm. of study. So that there is a presumption that the people that you are reading about are just like you. Mm. That, and that's not uh, in terms of, you know, they must be a, a faithful community, a religious community. That must be the context in which these, these pieces of literature were produced. That is not terribly, um, it's not impossible to understand that. No, right. It, it, right. It's, it, that's completely intelligible as an approach. I, I think and what, if, you know. And if I may just, just sort of, just quickly on that point, um, that, that's very much true to my own experience. I mean, I, I was an undergraduate student in theology in Oxford, and every single one of my teachers was a clergyman. And, and I mean, man. I mean, they were they were all um, they were all ministers either of the Church of England or or for for variety, a couple of Catholics, you know. <laughs> and I and I, you know, I'm 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 older, um, <laughs> and so I feel like I'm on the cusp of a generational shift where a lot of my professors, particularly at Harvard, were also mm-hmm. uh, of the, uh, the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not it's not um, something foreign to to my experience either. The other thing too is, um, I, I think we can underappreciate how much personal relationships are built in the field and how mm-hmm. we're professionalized. Mm-hmm. And so when these are the methods that are handed down to us, I mean, what does it take for someone who's new to the field to step up and say, you know what, this is completely wrong. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah, you want yeah. to continue in a program or get into a PhD program or get a job or mm-hmm. be respected in a professional context, it, it takes a lot to to break out of those those different kinds of confines. One person that I start the book with is Gustav Volkmar, mm-hmm. who's become a very interesting figure to me because I, I start the book with an interview with him from the mm-hmm. Chicago Law Times, a random document that I found. Thank you to Google Books. I put his his name in, and some mm-hmm. kind of you know public access interview from the Chicago Law Times comes up. Uh, from a travelogue from a lawyer who interviewed him, where he describes himself as, you know, eating lunch alone on a bench because he has such radical theories about the gospels <laughs> that no one will speak yeah. to him. You know, so yeah. I, I find those kinds of figures really interesting because it's really pushing up against the traditions in our field as well as trying to challenge the the way that we are professionalized or socialized mm-hmm. within the field mm-hmm. because our, our advisors are, they mean a lot to us and our ability mm-hmm. to to replicate their models um that that's key to how the field works and then the other is i i feel increasingly like the gospel writers and the context in which they have been codified canonized established continue on did such a great job of demonstrating uh, why we should, or, or making their case that this is historical, even though mm-hmm. I see that as a literary strategy, that mm-hmm. we have taken them literally. And mm-hmm. so for 2000 years, <laughs> these texts have, uh, by taking the, the eyewitnesses literally that are in the, encoded in the text and taking mm-hmm. the quote unquote testimony literally, 
in the text, uh, we continue to analyze it from that viewpoint instead of doing the comparative thing that might show that there are more literary strategies at play here that we might otherwise realize. Right. So if one were to summarize your book or your, or your approach, would it be fair to say that you are taking the Gospels literally as pieces of Greco-Roman literature and thereby introducing into dialogue with them lots of things from the literary context of, of their time, rather than invoking community, oral tradition, and, and a kind of imagined early Christian model. I mean, is, is, that, is that fair? I would tweak it slightly and Go say that I'm taking the author as literary, literally an author. Nice, so nice. Okay. I, yeah. I think that what I'm doing is, you know, there is a big movement now. Uh, I, I have a couple of, of works in mind um, where maybe two or three in the last, say, five years where there's a question of, you know, what is the book or what is the author or mm -hmm. are these authored texts? Or how do we understand that idea of the author text? My concern in that is that we're basically taking death of the author and reinscribing it in ways that are not mm -hmm. helpful for historical investigation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, sure, the gospels, the way that they're handed down to us, we don't have autograph copies. We don't know exactly how mm -hmm. these things were compiled. And I leave space in the book for that. I'm not mm -hmm. completely saying throw out the idea of oral tradition or throw out the idea of some kind of collaborative process for these things coming together. But at the end of the day, we do have a discrete text that is mm -hmm. offered in intelligible ways with, mm -hmm. with their own literary approaches. Mark, Matthew, let's just take the synoptics. I mean, John too. But each one has their own approach, uh, what we call, you know, this redaction criticism. We, mm -hmm. They have their own literary approach that is unique to that author, whether or not these things have been tweaked over time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in getting back to that author because we will talk forever. And this is a beauty of the field. And one reason I went into it, we can talk forever about what we think that context is. And mm -hmm. that's a worthy conversation. And it's one that I'm engaged in too. What I think becomes more interesting is when you couple those observations about what we think that context is, which frankly, we'll never get to. Mm -hmm. uh, and we just won't, the, the, the data is not there. If you couple that with the data that we do have, which is how did ancient authors work? Mm -hmm. That changes things, I think, for our field drastically, because mm -hmm. you cannot really reasonably argue that somebody with the knowledge to put together a creative piece of literature is not part of some kind of upper echelon of society. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that they're, you know, an a rich, a, a rich elite or a, an aristocratic elite or something like that. They could be a slave. Um, mm -hmm. They could be an educated slave, but they're going to be part of a social network that is very different from the encoded witness in the gospel, the downtrodden, illiterate, humbled masses that mm -hmm. you have in the gospels that I think get projected onto this imagined community. So that's why you get this idea that there's the spokesperson person for the community well they hired you know mm -hmm. a scribe that could do this they hired the, like the one guy who could read and write in the town to <laughs> to come right. in and they dictated the oral tradition i just don't uh, that seems aspirational to me compared yeah. to what we actually know about paideia and what we know about the training that went into authorship so if you couple that with the text itself it gives i think new 
new options for again imagining that that early vision. Right. I, I mean, I mean, because one of the curious things in in recent work is is that the orality paradigm and the and the appeal to oral tradition seems rather than waning it seems to have got even stronger i mean i i wrote this book on the gospel of thomas a few years ago and everywhere i looked i just kept seeing orality 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 so, so could i could i ask one or two sort of uh, specifics so we can help uh, listeners get an idea of, of of how you argue the case there's one Really interesting, well, lots of really interesting discussions in the book, but one bit that I really enjoyed is the discussion of parallels to the tomb stories, the so-called, I don't call it the empty tomb, I call it the vacated tomb, and that's a story for another day. But but the parallels to the the parallels to the tomb stories in the in the synoptics in it are, are absolutely fascinating, right? I mean, and 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 yet. I would I would guess about 99% of everything that's written about the tomb and resurrection stories in the gospels is written from a, a a kind of some either you know either apologetic or or kind of highly skeptical or or whatever kind of perspective but it's still trying to get at the history like trying to kind of dig into what actually happened that either a caused this miraculous event or or b that 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 caused this myth you know to arise but it's still trying to get somehow behind that event but it seems to me that what you're doing is you're actually saying let's look at these as as kind of tropes that you find in other examples of Greek or Roman literature, is that is, is that a fair way of, of, of putting yes, that? Yes, and, and I go through and I give something like thirty examples, right? <laughs> where across paradoxography, there's a, a great story about a young woman who who dies, um, and sort of to get back at her parents, uh, whenever mm-hmm. they have a house guest, she'll come as a ghost and seduce the house guest until <laughs> um, so someone a maid catches uh, her in the act. With, with somebody visiting and so then they go and roll back the stone of the tomb and it's empty except for you know some gifts that one of these paramours you know gave her during mm-hmm. one of these these um these visits i give another example from the greek novel of uh one of the heroes goes into the tomb of his presumed departed beloved and her body is not there and he starts you know screaming to the heavens you know oh you've made her a god mm-hmm. um I give other apotheosis stories, and uh, then I also talk about the satyricon, and uh, mm-hmm. this is another story we might talk about separately, but another presumed empty tomb where uh, you have the story of a Roman soldier who's tasked with guarding three crucified men to make sure the families don't come in and abscond with the bodies, but instead he finds a widow weeping in the tomb of her departed husband, uh, he spends three days and nights in there drinking with her. And, you know, I think the text says uh, yeah. partaking in, in the events that overcome people when they've had, you know, a full belly of, of food and wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a family comes and takes one man off the cross. And so mm-hmm. rather than have the Roman soldier punished for this, they take the body of the husband and put him on the cross and leave the tomb empty instead. So yeah. there are all these examples of empty tomb. That is a motif, is a literary motif. Mm-hmm. And so... I just argue that rather than, to your point, look for something behind this text that's historical in the Gospels, mm-hmm. some kind of historical truth. What if this is just, this is how you indicate someone became a god. Mm-hmm. You, their mm-hmm. body disappears. Uh, th- that's just what happens. But there are just so many examples of resurrected gods and, and, and empty tombs. And it seems to me that even somebody who, who wanted to do 
the historical kind of approach to, you know, what first century Jerusalem tombs would look like and all the rest of it, which is something that I'm interested in. Um, Even if you wanted to do that, you, you would still have to ask the question, it seems to me, of why did the synoptic authors choose to focus on the tomb in that way. You don't have to do that. It's not compulsory. I mean, Paul is able to give a resurrection story in 1 Corinthians 15 without, you know, people at a tomb. I mean, there are choices that the evangelist had about how to tell this story, right? Right. And it's circumscribed by genre to me. Mm -hmm. It's circumscribed by, okay, so we need to show this guy is a god now. (laughs) <laughs> or that's I, I'm playing a little fast and loose. We need to show that this guy has a supernatural status of some kind. How do you do that when you're writing a story like, well, mm-hmm. let's look at you know X Y Z genre. How do we do this in biography and paradoxography and and the novel? And this is how you do it. You mm-hmm. you roll the stone back and the body is gone and mm-hmm. everyone is confused and bewildered mm-hmm. by by mm-hmm. this by this situation. And so that's exactly what they did. They they played the type. So did you find that as you were writing this book that that the it gave you a fresh appreciation of the evangelist? Because you see, I, I think, I, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think that you really start admiring the evangelists in your book as they come alive as authors rather than as these purveyors of a of a of an oral tradition to their community. I, I think that that you, you sort of I, I can see you smiling as you as you as you tell us what you think they're up to is that fair yes i love that you read it that way because mm-hmm. it is something and i'm increasingly impressed by what they've done oh, mm-hmm. almost daily i mean mm-hmm. you know what it's like to be in this field i i joke with my students you know i think i'm like a secular nun i just think about, <laughs> <laughs> i think about these texts yeah. and about jesus all day long um but i i'm always working every day uh, on on some project and I'm just blown away I'm working on Mark right now mm-hmm. and I'm I, I'm just continually impressed with his his use of different motifs of I, I think that he's more sophisticated than we've given him credit mm-hmm. for uh, and then I start to question is some of the way that he's structured his language you know he's often considered this this poor executor yeah of of greek uh and sort of this i don't want to say sloppy author but maybe you know he's not rising to um the occasion as much as others Mm -hmm. because he may be limited by his his ability to write in greek and there are all kinds of theories as you know about Mm -hmm. why that is um on the other hand he's writing just like a paradoxographer would write mm-hmm. and so sometimes i i go into that kind of comparative mode and it's it gives me a fresh appreciation for what i think these authors are are trying to accomplish or matthew's use of of stoic concepts as uh, people like aaron roberts has written about mm-hmm. you know there there's so much more to appreciate about how they've employed philosophy how they've employed different kinds of literary theory or, mm-hmm. or literary uh, approaches and motifs that I, I think there's a lot as I say work to be done to reevaluate mm-hmm. what is going on with with how they've approached this literature within their moment within mm-hmm. their literary moment do you think that do you think that part of the reason we've got into the mess that we have in the field is because of our our vex history with Judaism and Christian supersessionism, in insofar as 
it seems to me, I mean, that that if you don't emphasize over and over and over again all the time just how Jewish the Gospels are and just how Jewish Jesus is and just how Jewish Paul is, then somehow one's not really properly engaging as a, as, as a New Testament scholar. And I, I wondered while I was reading your book whether the reason why we're not looking as much as we should to other Greco-Roman literary products is because we've just allowed ourselves to to think of nothing other than how Jewish are the Gospels. And of course, you know, and I, it's silly really, isn't it, to think that we can't think two things at the same time, that, you know, that they're Greco-literary product, uh, Greco-Roman literary products that talk about this Jewish character. I mean, is that, is, is that fair? I mean, I'm tapping a little bit one of your heroes, I think, um, Jonathan Z. Smith, you know, here, who, who has this, who, who talks about the way that we use we use Judaism in scholarship to kind of insulate Jesus and insulate the gospel writers. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I agree that it's a, a very important, I agree that it's a very important project for us to continue to identify where Judaism is at the center of this movement. It is a Jewish movement uh, in, its, in its first incarnation. And uh that to me is, I, I'm thinking of a meme I, I should send to you. <laughs> I show my students uh, with a, a woman whose head's in a tuba and the tuba says, these are Jewish texts and, you know, like it's <laughs> a New Testament professors, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I emphasize that to my students all the time, that these are our Jewish texts, or at the very least, you know, about these, these Jewish figures and it's essential for us to, to keep that in mind. What I think is important, a couple of things, that they're Jewish doesn't mean they're not Greco-Roman. Right. And I think that that is a uh, category mistake that we often mm-hmm. make. Mm-hmm. And especially you can see the, the dissonance between arguing that these, well, these are Jewish figures and Jewish texts, but these are Greco-Roman concepts and Greco-Roman literature, but somehow they have to be both at the same time yet divided. Mm-hmm. That doesn't that doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's what others have called the Hellenistic Judaism divide. And if you if you corner Judaism off from the rest of the Greco-Roman world, I feel that that is doing a disservice to both mm-hmm. our analysis, but also to the historical record in a way mm-hmm. that I think it's a good idea for our scholarship to challenge, continually challenge that. Mm-hmm. Because the more we understand Judaism and its role within the broader Mediterranean, ancient Mediterranean world, then we can better also understand why Greco-Roman authors in general would have been interested in these subjects. And there have been a lot of works in the last few years that ha- have challenged this, particularly on Paul. I, I'm thinking of the work of Jennifer Isle, for example, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about how divination is central for Paul or mm-hmm, the use of Greco-Roman mm-hmm. philosophy is central not only for Paul, but people like Philo or thinking about the way, you know, Josephus is our only other Pharisee mm-hmm, that we have mm-hmm. written records or like, and look what we have. Right, we have two right, Pharisees, right, yeah. you know, this is all we have. And one of them is our, one of our only very few surviving middle platonic authors. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to really work <laughs> on mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. that the Judaism Hellenism divide is um, something that we uh, we need to challenge it in that. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Yeah, th- I mean, I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is 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 why why it is that that we 
that we, we, we kind of got into the mess in the first place. And I think there are a range of things as well. And another thing I, I pick up from your, your work is that it, there's, a, there's a kind of canonical bias too in the way that, in the way that we, you know, we still operate in the field. And, and I, I wonder whether that's in part unavoidable for all of us in that we live in a culture that just uses imagery and vocabulary and, and themes from the New Testament all the time. I mean, you can't, you know, I mean, you cannot read the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke without it evoking all sorts of things in our culture. You can't turn right? on the TV at the holidays without seeing Linus giving uh, Luke's nativities right. on right. stage yeah. in a Snoopy cartoon. Yeah. yeah. It, w- one of the things I think that, that you're very good at doing is, is, is you actually manage to generate the otherness of the gospels again you you manage to get us to a point where we see them as something that's properly distant from us and that's quite a service because the sheer familiarity with them i think causes us to stop seeing them as being unusual and interesting and fascinating and why are they saying this and why because we're just trained to see them as in this kind of normative normative way so I, I like the way you regain the otherness They're, it's almost like you're putting them back in a distant country again and then and then then we go and visit them and we see them as 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 as, as foreigners suddenly and I, I like that very much yeah, that was a challenge. That was really mm-hmm. difficult when mm-hmm. writing this book before we started recording. I, I, or maybe it made it into the recording early on, but <laughs> I mentioned that I had to keep a little piece of paper on my desk, just reminding me that this is, you do not have to read these things in this way. And what happens if you don't? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's a warm bath. It's a warm mm-hmm. bath to, mm-hmm. to read these familiar texts that I mean, it, we, we talked before about coming at, at this material from a theological perspective. Now I'm someone who went to Catholic school growing up, mm-hmm. um, was a terrible student. I would love to see my report cards um, <laughs> from Sister Yvette <laughs> on, <laughs> on um, you know, how, what kind of a religious studies student I was. I, I don't remember particularly understanding as a child, mm-hmm. but I was still exposed to these stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the time and mm-hmm. so it was only in reading learning greek uh and i was a classics major mm-hmm. that my my classics professor uh, nancy evans uh started to say well you should learn koine you should go read the new testament you grew up in catholic school and you don't know anything about it <laughs> you, mm-hmm, should, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you should read these texts and and coming from that perspective of reading them over again and and really to some extent for the first time but doing so in greek i could say to myself you know why why are we translating this word as spirit mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. are we translating this word as church why are we mm-hmm. translating mm-hmm. this word as sin i i would i would just be confused and so i think my con- general confusion in life has mm-hmm. served me well <laughs> yeah what's that well but th- but that's but that is a great point though isn't it because the beginning point of great academic work is being confused about stuff i mean i mean it it, it there has to i mean a great project has to be driven surely by intellectual curiosity and for me i don't know about you i mean intellectual curiosity comes from looking at things and saying that can't be right or I'm confused. I don't understand why everyone's saying this. And, you know, I mean, sometimes there's, there's something which is like a consensus in the field and, and, you, you, and, and you look at it and you go away and say, oh, okay, 
I see why that's a, I see why people think that's the case. You know, the pastoral epistles not written by Paul. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm, everybody says it. I'm a bit of a spoil spoiler. I say, oh, no, no, I see why they're saying that. Sometimes you get that. But a lot of the fun projects do come from, I am confused what's going on, right? Can I give you an example of Go that? For it, yeah. Uh, so I, I was working at Fundacion Heart in Geneva, which is a wonderful place because every, it's a classics library that you can do a residency in. And, you know, the beauty of it is I know we have the internet and, you know, all these databases, but if you need one of the lobe editions, it's there, you know, it's physically there. And I I like the physical books. So I, I, you know, before I had children, you know, I was (laughs) (laughs) spent a couple of weeks there at a time. And I remember, I forget why I looked at the Satyricon. I I couldn't tell Mm -hmm. you why, Um, but I started to read it and came across the Tremalchio scene. Probably I was reading John Bodell at the time. Um, that that mm-hmm. would be my guess because he's written about this quite a bit. Uh, and then I also came across the so-called Widow of Ephesus and a few other stories that to me sounded so much like what I was seeing in the Gospels that I started to frantically look online at all of these books, you know, down in the in the bowels of, mm-hmm. of the stacks right. of this right. library, reading, trying to figure out why haven't anybody compared these two texts? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. The, the, from the, the three men crucified being guarded by the Roman right, soldier right. to Tremalchio telling everyone at this dinner party that he's going to die and they should, you know, divide, giving this mm. funerary oration that sounds just like what we have in the Last Supper. Uh, I, I just couldn't figure out why scholars hadn't compared these two things. And the more I mined these texts, the more of these connections I saw. And then I found the work of Ulrike Roth, who mm-hmm. argues that we've mis- there's a misattribution, that the Satyricon uh, is not Petronius, but actually is a second century text on the basis of some details. And you know, I'll, I'll leave people to, to read um, these articles, but there are details in the letters of Pliny that appear in the Satyricon mm-hmm. in the exact same order. Okay. And so she makes a very convincing case that whoever wrote the Satyricon is within Pliny's intellectual circle. The same Pliny who's writing letters to Trajan saying, I've right. got these Christians. Yeah, right, right. You right. know, that I am yeah, I dealing yeah, with them properly. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden I have, when I'm thinking about, you know, alternative intellectual networks for the gospel authors, I not only have the Satyricon, which has all of these motifs we find in the gospels, in conversation with a man writing to Trajan about Christians, mm-hmm. and then in the gospels, the same motifs appearing, literary motifs appearing, it opens up all these possibilities, are the gospels reading the Satyricon? Is the author mm-hmm. of the satiricon satirizing the gospels? Mm-hmm. You know, is there some kind of intellectual circle here that we haven't explored? So that's exactly the kind of it, once you can break yourself out yes. of these structures and you yes. start to see these kinds of comparisons, it's it can be exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Very much so. To, to answer the question of why hadn't anybody compared them, there were a lot of people who said like, "Hey, these are pretty similar," but no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> it couldn't yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so I, I kept, you know, thinking, am I, what, what, what's wrong with this? What am I mm-hmm. missing? And, and, mm-hmm. and back to what we were talking about earlier, this is why I tend to send my work off. So I, I wrote the piece comparing mm-hmm. the two and sent it to classical quarterly because I thought, you know, some classicist is going to put me in my place. Yeah. <laughs> <Some> <laughs> classicist yeah. is, they're going to reject me. They're going to open that up and I'm going to get a rejection three mm-hmm. days later because I have to be missing something here. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can come from a fresh perspective, I think it, it yeah. we have a lot of work to do. 
No, absolutely. So it's early days for the book. It's only been out a few weeks. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the lucky early readers. But how do you think, because there's something terrifying, I don't feel like this, but there's something terrifying about, about putting, putting our work out there for other people actually to look at. And I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always like, uh, you, you're terrified. Like you, you, when, when, when you finally get, get a review, you're kind of looking at it through your fingers because you don't quite want to see. What, how do you think the book is going to be received? Obviously, you've got some fantastic endorsements um, uh, there, and lots Thank of people I've talked to. Oh, well, so it's very nice. It, it was argue, my, absolutely yeah. my pleasure. But, <laughs> but I mean, but how do you? Let Let me ask this because one of the hardest things about being a scholar, and let's face it, it's a wonderful life. But one of the hardest things is people misunderstanding or misrepresenting us, or or or, or feeling that they've done that. And, and I sometimes try to think to myself how could I be misunderstood here and how can I ward that up? How, how do you think that people will, will receive this book that, 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 you know, aren't the sort of Laura Nasrallahs well, and, and the Damases of this world? I have a wonderful preview from reader two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like everyone has a reader two, right? Um, so I, I had a wonderful preview from reader two okay. of, of how one might misunderstand <laughs> oh, okay. the okay. book. Yes. I think I made some moves to help mitigate this kind of reading. Mm-hmm. But I think one reading people might bring to this, uh, especially out of frustration, would be, well, you're just replacing one community for another. You're just taking, <laughs> you're, you're, you're saying, okay, so it's not the Christian community, it's writing communities, but you're still having a community. So what's all this business about critiquing community? Mm-hmm. And the problem comes back to what I said before. The, the, the idea is not that I'm replacing one community with another. I'm trying to come at a more historically plausible argument Mm -hmm. or perspective for how we approach these documents that don't mystify the origins of Christianity the way that we traditionally have, Mm -hmm. or doesn't make any assumptions about the social context of these writers that don't bear out from what we know about ancient authorship practices. Mm -hmm. Because to my mind, even defaulting to something like, oh, well, it must be uh, a scribe, or there's still an element of the romantic in many of those constructions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm taking what I view as a first step in the book because it is a discrete first problem to say what happens when we both critique the concept of community, the word itself and the origins of that word, it, it, its use in the romantic era, the idea of the folk community and how we've mm-hmm. inherited that both from the perspective of, of methodology in the field, but also theology in the field mm-hmm. and the ways that those have been curiously persistent for us. That's what I get into in chapter two. Um, so I think if you are, are frustrated by by this idea that mm. you know that I'm I'm theoretically critiquing something called community yet still invoking some kind of social network, you could miss what I'm trying to get at. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In the yeah. book, and so I, you know, there's because I'm a little bit repetitive in that respect because I, I lay out the thesis and I try to give some context, but then I lay out the thesis again because I'm just trying to acclimate us to a new approach you could end up saying like, well, you're just repeating yourself, you know, like, mm-hmm. right, and, right. And so, and so that's something I hope that um, people stick with the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And I actually, each, each chapter pretty much holds together on its own as well. Yeah. And so if you're not so interested in, you know, all of the, the theory stuff, you can mm-hmm. jump to chapter two and, mm-hmm. and find out more about what I see as that trajectory in terms of, mm-hmm. of the romantic influence on the field. Um, or then go into the later chapters to see how I make the kind of comparisons we talked about earlier with other mm-hmm. kinds of literary motifs that I think pertain to the Gospels. 
so yeah i, no, I would I think say that, that that's that's it probably sure yeah no i think that's i think that's really fair i mean the i did read it in order but i can i think you're right there's a nice episodic way that you put things together so if someone really does just want to jump to, you know straight to chapter five or whatever then then you know it, it's it, it facilitates that quite nicely but it still i think builds cumulatively towards towards its conclusion quite helpfully i i agree <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree I worked hard at trying to to make it this uh in the aggregate uh, create a new picture yeah of of how to approach these things and in a way the selections that I make particularly in the last two chapters of which motifs I I focus in on in terms of the comparisons that I make that's only the tip of the iceberg I end mm-hmm. up I actually um we're using some of the work that I, I have a co-authored piece with David Constant on subversive mm-hmm. biography. And I bring that back into the fold in the fifth chapter mm-hmm. and then expand on it um, to actually create some kind of genre classification for the gospels and to show a trajectory of literature. But that's not the only one mm-hmm. because I think the ingenuity of the gospel authors, again, back to something we were talking about previously, is that they are combining a lot of different elements. They're not just yeah. writing a biography, but they're using elements from the novels, from paradoxography, from mm-hmm. other kinds of literary sources mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from the imperial period that is, is really innovative and a really, really interesting uh, foray into that scope of, of ancient literature that mm-hmm. I think can be appreciated on its own terms in a slightly different way. Excellent. It reads, I should, should say as well, it, you, you have an enviably clear writing style as well. I mean, it's. No one's ever accused me of that. It's. It's so. You're. 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 You're so. You're so clear the way that the way that you write. So it's. It's very. Even though there's a lot of dense material in there, especially some of the theory stuff and so on. It's not at all a difficult read. Uh, I think. I think. I think anyone that's read the book would agree with me on that. It's. It's. You. It's. One seldom trips up over sentences or anything like that, or has to go back over them again. Well, I worked hard on that. I will say I have two inspirations, three. One is uh, Stan Stowers writes the same way. And mm-hmm. um, he writes sentences that are so short and concise, but so <laughs> packed yeah. that, um, you know, I, I know I'm going to need, you know, a couple of weeks every single time he writes something mm-hmm. new, but he still is able to synthesize things so beautifully mm-hmm. and, and simply in an accessible way. So I've always admired that. I also married an English professor um, <laughs> in the first draft yeah. and the final draft of this book. And uh, he he always tells me that academics are not taught how to write, which I think is right. right. Yeah, and yeah. so he's given me some crash lessons and uh, his editorial eye has helped me a great deal um, over time. I used to actually also read um, New Yorkers and things like that and, okay. and New York Times yeah. book reviews yeah. when I was writing this to try to understand I basically tried to teach myself, you know, what is a more accessible style so that Excellent. comes across me, means a lot Excellent. to me because I worked really, yeah. really hard. Yeah. Because if anybody went back and pulled the dissertation mm-hmm. version of this from the Brown Archive, mm-hmm. it didn't look like this at all. <laughs> so. but the, well, the thing is, I mean, writing is difficult. I mean, writing really is difficult. And, and it's, you know, I mean, musicians generally get better and better and better the more they practice and I think it's it's true with academic writing as well that that I mean if I go back and I I read something that I wrote 20 years ago I'm actually embarrassed by it 
I'll be no. embarrassed by this someday. You won't. No, no, no. You'll be fine. You're fine. <laughs> no, no, but, but there is, there's something very meta about um, working on my own writing, but then seeing my own literary habits and then thinking about the literary habits of the gospel mm-hmm. authors. Mm-hmm. That was something that stuck out to me working on this too, because mm-hmm. especially someone like Mark, you know, and immediately and immediately and immediately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I see, I see his structure, and I have the same kinds of tropes in my. You know, I'm, I'm just as cliched in my own writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a, it was a fun project to try to break out of some of that, and you know, yeah. That's so I, I appreciate yeah. that you noticed that. Thank you. So, no, no. So, so, so speaking of, um, of writing, what's the next project? What's, uh, how is, is it, is it a development of this? Is it something different? What's the, what's the uh, next, next step? Well, it, it started as uh, a way to branch off of this project. There was a section in this book that I cut that was about imperial captive literature is what mm-hmm. I called it. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to look at why an imperial author would be interested in the subject of Jewish religion, um, religion with Jew- Judaism without the temple. Uh, why would they be interested in Judea specifically, that region, especially post-war? Mm-hmm. And so I, I started uh, a project there, but the, the book, it, it seemed like too much of a diversion in the book. So I removed it mm-hmm. and I published it actually elsewhere um, as a standalone piece. But what I thought was there, there really wasn't room or space in this book to get into. Okay, so I've established that these are normal Greco-Roman authors within their own kind of literary network, but who the heck were these guys? Right, right. Um, I I never really got to that piece. And so Mm -hmm. I felt that a sequel to this book would necessarily include trying to get a little bit more at, well, who do I imagine these people are? I do want Mm -hmm. imaginative exercise at the end of one of the chapters. I think it was at the end of chapter three where I'm like, so Mm -hmm. imagine the guy sitting at his desk. And I I assume these are men. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to say guys flippantly, but um, most likely these were men given statistics in the ancient world, you know, what did they have at their disposal mm-hmm. to write their, their gospels. So I wanted to see, is there more that I can discover about these networks that I've posited along the lines of what mm-hmm. I described in terms of the satiricon and Pliny in the gospels, right? If, what, what's been untapped? What haven't I explored? So a little bit of network theory as well. So I, I have a book that I'm working on called popularizing Jesus. What it's become is more trying to figure out who not only produced this literature, but who was it actually trying to appeal to if you mm-hmm. don't imagine it's for that Christian community. And what I'm working on right now is the thesis that it's actually, um, you'll forgive me for saying this, but it's kind of bougie lit for the nice. imperial period. That yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like it's kind of hitting on, you know, these popular tropes in a way that they're aware of Virgil, they're aware of mm-hmm. high literacy, the highest forms or the ideal uh, you know, I, I use board you for that too, you know, in the first book, this idea that there's, there's this, uh, this pole of, mm-hmm. of, in a, a grand scale of, of where literature, the highest uh, literature that you can aspire to is someone like a Virgil, you know, highest education, mm-hmm. highest style. They're, they're not really aspiring to that per se, it seems, right. like the gospels. Mm-hmm. They're doing something a little bit different. And so, you know, is it possible that this literature is being written for the, the love of the subject, but also within what David Constant has called elsewhere, you know, for the active reader. So the same mm-hmm. class of, you know, maybe not native aristocracy, but an emerging um, class in mm-hmm. especially the second century, 
that is uh, enjoying things like the Greek novel or enjoying mm-hmm. Paradox Agrippina. And so I, it seems to me that if I am thinking about a new social context for both the production and the reception of this material, it could mm-hmm. be that. So that's what Great. I'm doing right now. Yeah. I can't wait. How long how long are we going to have to wait for that? <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I suppose but the thing is though you've alluded to the fact you you know you shared material with different people and you've know, bounced off different people. I mean that itself is a little like the ancient authors that you're talking about. I mean they didn't just I mean Luke I I assume doesn't just you know do do that thing in one sitting and then is out there and is you know and is it and is yeah. No, that's how I publication works. Yeah, I assume there's yeah. a there's a ton of feedback, and and then he goes back and he, you know, and he has a, you know, he 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 has a gets going on a second draft. I mean, so so we'll see, we'll hear some of this in the coming months and years, I suppose. Well, there's the I think the captive literature material will be in it, so that's out mm-hmm. there some version of it. I Great. published it in a book on the Bible and class struggle with Fortress Press. Great. Uh, you have a draft of a chapter actually yes, around yes. last week. And so I'll be, Great. you know, I'll be scrutinized this coming week on, mm-hmm. on that chapter. And I've already mm-hmm. had some feedback there. So it's a, a little bit like the satiricon um, piece where I, I'm sending it out in the world, waiting for someone to say like, you've completely forgot about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got a few new, a, a few new pieces coming out. Um, you know, I, I call Stan Stowers occasionally and I'll say, I'm thinking about this theoretical mm-hmm. model and, and I, and then there'll be a long pause and I'll say, and basically you think I should just use book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, was, oh, yeah. I, I had this whole idea that I was going to use Veblen for, you know, this chapter and, and then, um, you know, it'll take me six months and then I'll realize he was right. Um, yeah. So I, I'm still, yeah. it, it's going to be a tough book to argue, but uh, hopefully I'll finish it this summer. Fantastic. All right. Well, good luck with that. I mean, how, how do you find, uh, we, we, you know, just, just in, in, in wrapping up, I mean, how have you found working during these weird times that we live in? Because, I mean, I know for myself, my productivity has gone way down, but, but some people have actually managed to direct a lot of their energy into writing projects and are able to do that. Other people struggle with that a bit more. I mean, how, how, has, it, how has it been for you to sort of navigate? And Well, I, yes, I, I, my escape mechanism has always been work. So mm-hmm. under normal circumstances, um, I would have, you know, in any personal crisis, um, work would have been my, my escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes, my productivity, I haven't written as much as I normally would have. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, also, I feel, and I think some people might might relate to this. Uh, for example, this chapter that I was referencing that I, I sent to you to, to mm-hmm. look at last week, I wrote that under conditions that were not optimal. Primarily my work hours after teaching, grading, course prep, getting my, or after mm-hmm. my son's in bed. So mm-hmm. I usually, if I'm going to write, it's between about like 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Oh, my goodness. And yeah. whether I want to or not. Yeah. So I can't yeah. wait for the muse. You know, I have mm-hmm. to just pump this stuff out if I if mm-hmm. I want to get it done. And so that I'm not luxuriating in the work the way that mm-hmm. I would like to in terms sure. of perfecting my writing style. Um, also, you know, obviously limited by library. Elizabeth Castelli has been so good to me <laughs> when I can't find an article. You know, she... She helps. I have a lot of friends that have been very helpful. Yes, um, I've, I, yes I've seen. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what? I think that's been, in, in these difficult times, I think one of the things that's been so wonderful is 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 seeing that that network of scholarly 
colleagues really becoming just just wonderfully supportive and not everybody equally but but there's certain people i mean like elizabeth castelli is one you know that, that I, i've seen multiple times where she's gone out of her way to help people with with resources i think it's really? just fantastic yeah she know? has uh, canada moss has been mm-hmm. unfailingly available and helpful and supportive um mm-hmm. of me throughout all of this Jennifer Isle, I mentioned before, Aaron Roberts, Sarah Rollins, mm-hmm. um, all is always, again, unfailingly supportive whenever I have an idea or, you know, I oh. say, Sarah, I, I mentioned it. I, I have footnotes in both this book and the upcoming book that'll just be a footnote that says, Sarah came up with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah yeah. helped me articulate what the heck I meant um, by this. Uh, Canada does the same thing. And so um, to have these people, I, I, I sent, uh, I have a group text with, with some of them and I sent them a text the other night that just said, you know, in our careers, we're going to know each other the rest of our lives. And if I'm stuck with you all for the rest of my life, then I'm really, really lucky. Oh, that's, so that's it, so it, nice. It's, that's so but nice. It's, brought, yeah. it's brought that out. Um, mm-hmm. Chris Keith mm-hmm. is someone else who's been um, wonderfully supportive. You have been wonderfully supportive. Oh, you're very kind. No, it's not kindness. It's just a, it's just a description of the situation. So mm-hmm. um, to see us all band together in this way has been has been wonderful and something I, mm-hmm. I really do cherish. Um, so if there yeah, is same here, same here. To I, this, yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real for me. It's been a real route to sanity and a, a, a means of saying, okay, we you know we we can get through this. We can get through this somehow. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's. Uh, but anyway, we've been talking for for an hour or so. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest on the NT pod. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I'm a long time admirer of your work that you even uh, appreciate the book to me has continued to just as incredibly flattering and uh, means the world. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again so much to Professor Robin Walsh for joining me on The Antipod, and I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Her book, to remind you, is The Origins of Early Christian Literature, contextualizing the New Testament within Greco-Roman literary culture, and it's out now. I'm going to be back again soon with NTPod episode 99, in which I'll be talking to Professor Jamie Clark Souls about her new book, Women in the Bible. You can find me on the web at podacre.blogspot.com or you can just search for the NT pod over on Apple Podcasts or Duke's Apple Podcasts or just Google for the NT pod. It's always a pleasure to have your company. I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully within the week. Bye-bye.